Drummer Travel Show, our weekly podcast about all things travel. Most of this podcast was taped before the election results came out, but we knew this was going to be a week where we wanted to concentrate on the USA. And so we decided to concentrate even more specifically and look at the great city of New York. To help me with that, I enlisted one of the editors from New York Magazine, who is also the editor of a fabulous new book. It's called The Encyclopedia of New York. So we have a, a, I think, a really interesting discussion about that book. And then my colleague, Zach Thompson, who is the uh, managing editor of Fromers.com, he came on so we could discuss how the Fromer guidebooks used to deal with New York City. And what has changed? Uh, Because the city has changed a lot. And so has how we do guidebooks. I I think it's a it's a fun discussion. Uh, Looking back at the history of the city, and also how a guidebook is written and the types of decisions that go into making one. So let's start with our first guest. We have Chris Bananos. He is the city editor for New York Magazine, but we have him on today because he is the main writer and editor of a fabulous book. It's called The Encyclopedia of New York, but in a way it could be called The Encyclopedia of How We Live in the United States Today because there's so many things in this book that talk to our larger culture in general. Uh, so w- with that introduction, welcome, Chris, to the to the Farmer Travel Show. So glad to have you here. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So the book starts with a little bit of history about New York, uh, the fact that it was created as a center of commerce, but because of that, it became one of the biggest centers of creativity in the world. Um, can you talk a little bit about that history? Sure can. And I think that's exactly the, the sort of, you've, you've pulled out the central point philosophically behind this book, which is that we did not set out to make a real comprehensive encyclopedia, a true reference book, if you like. Um, right. Those books already exist and uh, we, we admire them, but that's not quite what we do at the magazine. Um, instead, what we wanted to do was sort of tighten the filter a little bit, if you will. And so each entry in this book is devoted to an invention that was either um, flat out created in New York City or um, picked up in its infancy, if you will, and slung out, uh, developed and slung out to the larger world. Um, The idea was really to focus on New York as the great creative engine that it is. And that, you know, we we as New Yorkers are, of course, very parochial about this, but we believe (laughs) we invent the whole world. (laughs) Well, I'm a New Yorker too, so I agree. <laughs> right. Well, and to me, that that kind of puts a spotlight on the fact that even the really terrible things have happened here over the world, uh, over the years, I should say. Um, we have been indestructible in the past or since our founding. I mean, we had terrible smallpox epidemics early in our history. We had 9-11. We had the Depression. I mean, there were so many things that that hurt this city. And I think it's very popular to say right now, oh, New York is dead. New York is over. How do you fight that sentiment? I I mean, I want to fight that sentiment, so I'm assuming you do too. But, you know, what what do you say to people who think that the city is, is not going to recover. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We were, as we were preparing this book, it went to press uh, early this summer, which means we were doing the, you know, latter part of the writing and editing in March and April and May when New York was going through this unbelievable convulsion. Yes, we we started working from home in the middle of it. It was was quite a thing learning to do things like page proofs in ways we don't ordinarily without, you know, exchanging sheets of paper. Um, And what I kept coming back to was the observation that New York tends to invent its way out of problems and crises. Um, Mm. You know, we, uh, we're very good at dealing with whatever's coming at us. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, we, uh, in 1975, as everybody knows, New York city was very close to bankruptcy, came within 24 hours of declaring bankruptcy when you dig into the history, which is an amazing thing that people don't realize just how close we came. Um, there was one negotiation session over, 
pension funds uh, that like mm. went deep into the night and kept us out of, you know, an even worse crisis than we were in. And, you know, the, the city was in such trouble because it had changed a great deal. It had been a manufacturing city and then all the manufacturing went south and west right. to bigger places, you know, and, and New York had to reinvent both its tax base and its very reason for being in many ways. And what happened? Well, Wall Street started to come up with new financial instruments and ways of, of, uh, of making money. And, um, you know, New York itself started depending on other industries, right? They went more heavily in on Wall Street and also on the creative industries. Sure. Uh, things like advertising and marketing and publishing and that kind of stuff. And at the same time, you know, we had all these empty factory buildings, right? Mm, down, yeah. down all those big old loft buildings built in the 19th century that had been underwear factories and paper box factories and, you know, small machine parts factories. And they were sitting there empty downtown and Robert Moses wanted to knock them all down and they didn't. Um, and what did we do? We figured out that the loft might be a nice thing to live in. A few scruffy <laughs> artists <laughs> started yeah. paying 50 bucks a month for these places and said, hey, this is pretty nice. The windows are big and the ceilings are high and it's kind of a great way to live. Um, so we invented our way out of, a, out of an empty factory crisis by creating new ways of living in a city that are now the most desirable in the world. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before this whole crisis, a couple of years ago at the Whitney, there was the biennial and they had one piece of artwork about wealth. And they made the point that the greatest sources of wealth at that time were art and New York City real estate. <laughs> yep. Uh, I mean, that, you're a New Yorker, you said. And I mean, yeah. do you, of course, you have a, a real estate story because we all have a New York real estate story <laughs> if we live here for yes. any length of time. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So, uh, so do you think the city will come back? I mean, you think it'll reinvent itself out of this crisis? Sure. I don't know how. Um, yeah, you know, it's that's the hive the mind that does it, not one person. Right. Um, but we always do. We got we got the the crunch in the seventies came at us in so many ways, and we're right. driven by so many different forces. It was it was even though this feels catastrophic right now, that was right. bigger. And we, yeah. we, we seem to have come out of that. Okay. The city is richer than it's been probably ever. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the seventies in the city. Every morning, my mother would give me mugger money, which I wasn't allowed to spend. I just had to keep it in my pocket. So I'd have something to give in case I got mugged. It's so funny. In the, when I was working on the M's, we were trying, trying, trying to make a case that the mugging was a New York invention. We actually, <laughs> oh. I tried to write the entry and That's the funny. more I read about street robberies, they are, they are much older than, than America yeah. itself. <laughs> Before, before we leave the topic of uh, will New York come back, I was listening to Fareed Zakaria. Uh, he has a new book out as well that sounds fascinating. And he was saying that city has, uh, not city, uh, history has gone towards the urban over the years. Uh, that, you know, Florence was decimated by the bubonic plague. It had the worst plague of any place in the world, and people thought it was dead, just fled that city. A uh, hundred years later, it was the center of the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'll see. In modern cities, there's a, a history of when they, when they are in crisis, the rent goes down and it's good for the creative part of its mm. uh, of its life because the artist can afford to live there again. Who knows if that will happen this time or, you know, indeed if ever, but it is, it is a plausible thing. If the rent goes down a little, it might be a little easier to live here. Right. Absolutely. All right. Look, going back to the book, I, I, I wanted when I do, we're the former travel guides. So we're always looking at why you should go to a place. And there's some really interesting uh, entries in the encyclopedia of New York, which goes from A to Z that not only talk about things that were invented here, but also show you where you can see those things. For example, abstract impressionism as an art uh, movement. I didn't realize that was uh, created in New York City. What, what's what's the definition of what that is and, and how do you see it in the city? Um, abstract expressionism. Uh, and by the way, I should mention that this essay is by Jerry Saltz, who is the prize, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Magazine. Uh, he's amazing. Creator. I follow he, him on Instagram. He's he got the best just, Instagram. He is post. so much fun on Instagram. He's so much <laughs> yeah. fun on Twitter. He's um, he was a late bloomer in that world, um, and it's just he's just fantastic. At it. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, um, Abex, it, you can you. It was one of the first global art movements that 
inescapably is New York. You know, other things happen in Paris and New York at the same time or whatever. Abstract expressionism is the kind of abstract painting that flourished in New York after World War II. It's epitomized by Jackson Pollock and sure. uh, uh, Willem de Kooning, Rothko and Mark Rothko and a few other, Barnett Newman, a few other people, right? And, uh, you know, it is... It flourished in the particular neighborhood in the central uh, Greenwich Village, like 9th Street. A lot of them lived on 9th Street, and uh, their hangout was the Cedar Tavern on mm. University Place, which Yeah, lasted. gone. Yeah, I know. Made it into, into this century, I think, just barely hanging on. I, I got to drink there a few times. Um, but they would go there and meet and drink and hang out and argue over, you know, art and also, like, you know, where to buy the good brushes um, until four in the morning every night. <laughs> right. And the painting is, I don't know quite how to say this, but it feels like a New York form. It's slashing and it's sort of brawny and it's about big gestures and bold strokes. You know, it's uh, gestural as the art critics say, I'm talking, I'm a little in over my head with the art critics, <laughs> here, but, but uh, they, they, um, you know, it, it feels like ours. It's yeah. high energy and it's frenetic. And um, well, I thought that the ex <laughs> the explanation in the book was one of the best I've ever read for abstract expressionism was, which is this group of artists decided to hell with art history, to hell with traditions. We're going to blow it all up and we're going to create a form where we are not going to try and control where the viewer is looking. There isn't going to be a focal point on the pay on the on the piece of paper. Yep. It's all going to be democratic in mm -hmm. a way. It's just all. I thought that was fascinating it to is. read. And it's also to hell with Paris. Where uh -huh. we, we are the ones who count now was the attitude after the war. And I think that is uh, significant. You know, a number of these were European immigrants who had left. Hmm. Um, and uh, it was, um, you know, it was it was sort of a statement that the world is ours now, America's and especially New York's. Right. And I love in the book, you have often a little uh, sections of either photos or uh, stuff from experts. And uh, in this area, you show, wow, you can see the major masterpieces of abstract expressionism at the Museum of Modern Art, at the Whitney, at the Guggenheim. I mean, if you are interested in this type of art, and I think being in the city where it's created gives it an extra feeling of vitality. Uh, you can see it here. This is the place to come. It's so true. And in, uh, just by way of explanation, throughout the book, we have a little rail of type running along the top of the pages. And as you say, there, there are kind of uh, real world annotations for a lot of the entries. If you want to, if you want to see, visit, or go do uh, something that is described in the, in the history, here's where it manifests itself in New York. And you can, you know, put down the book and go out for a while. Um, right. And uh, it's true in the, in the, um, the uh, multiplicity and, and breadth of all those, you do get a sense of like, wow, it's, it's, um, you know, any, anybody who thinks New York is dead, uh, need only go through those and start. Yeah. Well, I got to say, yeah, I've been visiting museums, at, which is there's never been a better time to go to a New York City museum it's because so you're all alone. It's and it's so it's true. Great. You go on a Saturday when you'd normally be just shoving your way in to look at anything. And it's like a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. It's yeah. terrific. <laughs> no, it's, it's really amazing. All right. Going up in the alphabet. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that the concept of downtown <laughs> comes from New York City. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, I'm so pleased we got this one in. Yes, it's, you know, <laughs> every city has a downtown. Of course, London has a downtown and Detroit has a downtown and Los Angeles has a downtown and on and on. Um, the thing is, none of them are down from anything. I mean, huh. some of them are downhill a little bit if you go to the river or whatever. But the word downtown has a very specific meaning. It means going to the financial and uh, business central district, right? Right. And in New York, you do that by taking the subway down on the right. map <laughs> to Wall Street. <laughs> because all of our streets are numbered and they go up. And so Manhattan going tall and skinny. <laughs> That's right. <Yes. laughs> so the idea of downtown comes from us. And then secondarily, there's another meaning to downtown. Because um, we, we, starting in the, call it the 1960s, I guess it exists a little earlier, but roughly then, you know, the idea of downtown theater and downtown artists and downtown uh, music became this 
idea that it was alternative or edgy or more experimental, right? Broadway right. theater in Times Square had a proscenium arch and, you know, there were kick lines of dancers and they had spangly top hats or whatever, <laughs> right? And downtown, it was three weirdos in a black box <laughs> right. their arms and speaking gibberish. Um, <laughs> and so downtown came to have this secondary meaning in that era that I think, again, mostly comes from New York. And again, it comes from those empty, cheap loft spaces in the 60s and 70s when you could put on a show for 50 cents and invite all your uh, avant-garde friends to come see it. And some of that would filter out into the larger culture and reinvent the world all over again. Yeah, yeah. All right, going up a little bit. I've, you know, I've written guidebooks to New York. I I didn't realize when Grand Central Terminal was built it has something like 50, 60, 70 blocks uh, going out from it, miles mm-hmm. of of uh, tracks under the city, which were an incredible engineering job. I, I hadn't realized that the, the, the footprint of the terminal was that large. It is an absolutely immense piece of engineering, and it is invisible. If you think about it, people, uh, some of our, your listeners, I'm sure, will have spent enough time in New York to get this. If you are in Midtown and you walk from Madison Avenue to Lexington Avenue, you just go two blocks across the street. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like anything changes. There's a slight grade. You walk uphill and then downhill, but that's it. But as it turns out, all of Park Avenue from 42nd Street, where Grand Central is, up to about 100th Street, is hollow. And it's multiple tracks. I, I forget how wide it is at the base. It's something like 18 tracks. and I forget the exact number. But it, and it shoots all the way up until the tunnel, the tracks come above, uh, above ground in Upper Manhattan. This right. giant public works project was built, it was an open cut for many years, and then Park Avenue covered it. But it was built at the, call it the turn of the 20th century. Grand Central in its current form opened in 1913. Um, And the scale and scope of it is staggering. It wouldn't have worked well even just a generation before that, because you had to have electric-driven trains. You cannot run a 60-block tunnel with trains burning coal, because everybody will choke on the smoke. Right. So you needed to electrify the system to really make it work. And if they tried to do it a little later, it would have been, but you can't, you can't put something that huge under a city, right. prohibitively expensive. So it happened at like the, the moment when it had to happen. And if we didn't have it, we'd be living in a very different place because yeah. essentially Grand Central enabled the creation of Westchester and the Connecticut suburbs and the bedroom communities beyond. And, you know, this giant economic and social and, and, and every other kind of engine that drives so much of New York um, is dependent on that rail system. Yeah. Yeah. No. And huge, huge public work. The, one of the most important buildings ever in the history of America. And people don't yeah. quite realize it. And an absolutely splendidly beautiful place, but a place that apparently was less beautiful than its sister facility, Mm -hmm. which was the original Pennsylvania station. And because of the destruction of that station, uh, a new type of law came into effect, not just in New York City, but across the United States. That's right. People have argued for years whether Penn Station died so that uh, Grand Central might live, in fact. Oh. <laughs> um, because just, just to, just to uh, back into the history a little, Penn Station, built in 1909 on the site of the current Madison Square Garden, was the, the flagship and, and showpiece of the Pennsylvania Railroad which after World War II began to decline when air travel started to come in and automobile travel started to come in in a big way. And uh, in the late 50s, the, the, the Pennsylvania Railroad was um, on the verge of bankruptcy. They had one thing left, and it was the station itself, which was three stories high and two, blocks, two full blocks of New York City space. It was, as a real estate play, fantastic. So they said, all right, we'll keep the underground parts of it. We'll sell Hello? the terminal on top for redevelopment uh, into a clump of skyscrapers. And, you know, they walked away with several uh, billion dollars in air rights and other payouts. Hmm. Um, nobody else wanted it to come down, but there was sort of no recourse. They owned it. And, you know, a few architects protested out front and people went, oh, that's a shame. Nice old building shouldn't come down. But also it looked shabby at the time. It was dirty and the windows were blacked out. And, you know, it needed it needed attention that it hadn't got for a long time because the railroad was so broke. Right. And um, they 
uh, they took it down between 63 and 68, put up Madison Square Garden, which even if you have affection for the garden, is not a very attractive building. No. And uh, the, the sense of loss really took off when the pictures started to hit. There's a photograph, we reproduce it in the book, that appeared in the New York Times in 1966. And it showed one of the statues, one of the great statues that was on top of the terminal, carved pink marble sculpture um, of effectively an angel. I think it was a mythological figure, not exactly an angel, but uh, broken and dumped in the Meadowlands in a junkyard mm, yeah. as, a, as a Pennsylvania Railroad train zipped behind it. Um, hmm. And the, the feeling of loss was sort of crystallized by this photo in the Times and the story. And there was already a sense that we were tearing down too much of our history by the early 60s. But this kind of galvanized the, the, the nascent historical preservation movement, leading to the passage, uh, to the creation of the Landmarks Preservation Commission, which saves buildings in New York for posterity. Right. The first such law, um, I think anywhere in the world, certainly in America, and really one that has a lot of teeth now. There are thousands of landmark buildings and dozens of landmark Across buildings. the United States, That's not right. just in New York. I mean, it's saved, it saved our history. Mm-hmm. And it's Chris, Grand Central, which was under threat of demolition in the late 70s. Well, there's so much in the book, and some of it is 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 really surprising and charming. Like, who would have ever thought that the Q-tip and toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> were invented in New York? I'll give you the choice of which you want to talk about. Oh, uh, cleaning out on either end, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. I'll do I'll do two sentences on each. Toilet paper was created by a man named Joseph Gaiety under the name <laughs> Gaiety's Medicated Paper. <laughs> <laughs> How could we not put that in the book once we discovered it? It was irresistible um, in the 1850s. And it was an expensive luxury product in the beginning. You know, any kind of right. disposable paper product was rare and uh, uh, comparatively rare in the 19th century. Um, we did not invent the toilet paper roll. That was a couple of uh, decades later, the Scott brothers. Scott's huh. toilet paper still in business. And then the Q-tip on the other end <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> is delightful in a whole different way. Here are the things I can tell you about the history of the Q-tip, which, by the way, was especially valuable because when you're putting together an encyclopedia, the Q chapter can sometimes be a little thin. <laughs> <laughs> it's delightful to have a good cue. Um, a Q-tip, yes. Uh, it's an even crazier story in its way. Um, Leo Gerstenzanger, I believe his name was, uh, was a Polish immigrant in New York. Uh, and one day he spotted his wife cleaning out their baby's ears with a little piece of cotton uh, wrapped around a Q-tip. And it was clumsy and it didn't quite work. So he came up with a, a commercial version of this product that he could make and sell. And it did not have that name at first. It was called, they, he called his product Baby Gaze, which sounds very peculiar now. <laughs> um, yeah. But Baby Gaze were named for their daughter. Their daughter was named Elizabeth. She was nicknamed Gay. And so it was a reference to their little girl. Ah, well, that's very sweet. And well, um, he, uh, by the way, he changed it later on. Um, they always say now at the company that the Q stands for quality, but apparently Q-tips was because he thought Elizabeth was a cutie. <laughs> Aww. That's very sweet. Well, it is an absolutely fascinating book, and it's one of those books where because all the entries are pretty short, you can duck in and out of it. It's great for our busy lives. I think it would make a great holiday gift. It's called The Encyclopedia of New York. It comes from New York Magazine and my guest, Chris Bonanos. Thank you so much, Chris, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thanks so much. This was fun. Next up, I have Zach Thompson, who is the managing editor for Fromers.com to help me discuss how we used to cover New York. And let me remind everybody at this point, we'd love to hear from you. If you have thoughts on this podcast, on what could be done better, on what could be changed, on what's really working, please email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. We're going to start this exploration of New York City by looking back at how we used to cover it in the Fromer guidebooks, uh, specifically in Fromer's New York City on $5 a day. Hey, Zach, how are things uptown? Hi, they're good. You're, you know, 
<laughs> you Hi, know, it's yeah. beautiful today. <laughs> yeah, it is a beautiful day. And so for, for now, that means we can still dine outside. And soon there's uh, going to be shopping outside all over New York. The whole city is going to be turned into an open air bazaar. Zach, on your bookshelves, you have a copy of uh, New York City on $5 a day. This is from 1961. And just to set the scene, can you read like the the mission statement and what my father had to say about the book? Because I think it's very charming. Yeah, this is from 1961. So at that point, there were only, uh, I think it was the fifth book we ever did. So there was Europe and then Mexico, Miami and the Caribbean, and then California and Vegas. And then came New York in uh, 1961. And um, Arthur writes in his preface that uh, all our books share a common theme, that the way to enjoy a new city or a new country is to live in it inexpensively, relying on your mind more than your wallet. I would say that's still our mission, right? To rely more on the mind than, than expensive experiences, like what you can... Uh, what anybody can afford. Well, I think it's that's always been part of our our ethos mm-hmm. that you often have better experiences when you don't try to buy your way into them. When the experiences are just based on human to human interaction and wandering around on your own two feet to see the destination. That that often money can stand in the way, can stand between you. And a great experience. Absolutely. Or if you're at some luxury resort and you're afraid to go leave the beach to go talk to, you know, to uh, discover some new culture, I think uh, money can kind of cocoon you in a way that's limiting. Right. So, uh, so that was the way he set it out. But then, can you read the? Yeah, uh, uh, I love the next uh, part so, of it. He, yeah, he says that. Uh, so, one year ago, Joan Feldman and Norma Cate uh, came to me. This is Arthur writing, and argued that the five dollar a day budget could be applied to New York. Like a reflex, I reacted. Impossible! I cried and uttered weighty responses why this could not be done. And it, that was interesting to me because I, I, I think five dollars a day. We think of that as as a stretch nowadays, of course. But it's interesting that even in 1961, it uh, felt like uh, an impossible. Uh, feet. Um, but right. then he writes, that was one year ago. In the interval, these two young ladies have given the city of New York such a going over as it rarely undergoes. Literally, they have walked and searched searched along every avenue and street in Manhattan and also pieces of the Bronx and uh, Brooklyn. They have examined, eaten, peered and probed and what finds they discovered. So I th- that's also kind of what we still aim for today to kind of really dig into a place as much as possible. Uh, so the book contains 40 restaurants, four zero, uh, with meals under $1.50 a piece. This is in New York City. 40 <laughs> hotels with room rates under $3 per night and 90 free or ultra cheap things to do. And I got to say, f- for anybody uh, who lives in New York City, no- uh, when he talks about the author's Joan Feldman, you probably know from her married name, Joan Feldman became Joan Hamburg, who for many, many years hosted a a talk show on WOR and is now on WABC. She's still writing. She's still hosting. She's a she's a force of nature. And dad gave her her start. This was her first big job. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So she she's a she's a major radio personality and a lovely, lovely person. I went to high school with her daughter. Oh. So I know her very, very well. So we ought, we ought to have her on, not the daughter, Joan. Right. Yeah. So it was a great book, but just as we were discussing a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of months ago on this podcast, there are some things in the book that we probably wouldn't agree to with today. Uh specifically there early on there comes uh, there's only one sentence about central park which is go here only in the summer months when there's safety in numbers yes the book the book does list free square dancing and ball ra- ballroom dancing and and free concerts which still exist today actually uh but um back then the park was considered dangerous. This is in the 1960s and yeah. for many years. I, I, that was kind of the the 
crime wave years. I guess it only got worse in the 70s, right? Um, also, the, the that movie, The Out of Towners with Jack Lemmon, that's the late 60s. They And they end up having to spend the night in Central Park. And it's it's just the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody in that movie. Right. But so I... But- this is not something you have to worry about today. Oh, no. It's uh, one of the best tourists. I'd say it's up there with Statue of Liberty and Empire State Building is one of the can't miss three can't miss things in Manhattan. I, th- I think so. I mean, I'm the I'm the writer of Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City, and I dedicate several books to the park because the park in many ways changed the world's conception of what a park could be. Uh, The park was built in the 1850s. There was a a large tract of land. Some of it was inhabited. In fact, there was a a very, there was a thriving black community who was kicked out to make room for the park. It was one of the great tragedies in terms of the Yeah, not the the only city where that sort of thing has happened for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so they were kicked out and uh, Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox got together and became the first famous noted landscape architectures. Yes, there was landscape architecture at Versailles and in other parts of Europe. Japan also. Sure. But but these these guys really kind of flipped it. Because what they wanted to create wasn't for some great potentate. It wasn't, you know, for the pleasure of the lord of the manor. Mm-hmm. The In the 1850s, it was the height of the Industrial Revolution. And people were terrified. People were terrified that uh, because of the, the really drastic changes to everyday life, that human beings were not living as healthfully as they had in ages past when their day-to-day jobs tended to be outdoors in the open air. They were inside these factories doing repetitive work. And there was this idea that unless there was given a healthful outdoor place for the average Joe to go, people would die and there would be social uprisings. And so uh, the park was created to try and give a place every human need and every class of society. So you go into one area of the park, it's called the Rambles, and the, the trees are much closer together there. In fact, they're they're done in a forest-like way because this was the part of the park where people were supposed to go and escape and not see the city through those trees to really, really feel like they were in the deep wilderness. Now, many years later, this became a place where people went to hook up. (laughs) Yeah. There's a famous scene in uh, Angels in America where there's a sex scene that happens in the Ramble. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was why the Ramble... Also, this year, that's where the the confrontation between Sarah Cooper and Chris Cooper over the, the dog off the leash and she yes. called the cops these african-american yeah that was that's right yeah 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 so it's it's a place that really does feel cut off from the city then they had an area called uh sheep's meadow where there actually were sheep that's why it's called sheep's meadow oh i've always wondered that i'm i was i was wish they were they had them now yeah, well, they wanted uh, uh, urbanites to have a feeling for country life. So mm. they created a place called the Dairy, where they had cows so that poor children could get fresh milk. And they had this this sheep's meadow with actual sheep on it. Of course, sheep's meadow then became, many years later in the 1960s, it was kind of the be-in place. A lot of people went there to drop hallucinogenics mm. and, and hang out and get groovy. Uh, but for, for originally... Originally, it was supposed to be pastoral America brought to life. And then there's another area called the Mall and Bethesda Fountain. Mm -hmm. And this is this really majestic looking promenade grounds with old growth elm trees planted on either side. And and they were big when they were planted. The, the, The crazy thing about Central Park is every single square inch of it is artificial, even the even the soil was brought in from New Jersey. Uh, there's not one part that was really there. <laughs> it yeah. was all created by uh, Olmsted and Vox. That's what I love about it. So they it. created and, this oh. for the upper class folks to have a, an area to promenade and meet one another. 
And Bethesda Fountain was built because uh, one of the things that really allowed New York City to become the city it was was the importation of water from from uh, Croton. There was a big reservoir there. To this day, that's where New York City gets it, its water. Hundreds of miles of underground pipes had to be built to bring that water into the city. It was a, a major engineering accomplishment. And so there is this beautiful fountain, Bethesda Fountain, with an angel on top, made by a sculptress named Emma Stubbins. She was the first woman in New York City to get a major sculptural contract. And it, it was because they realized even then that bringing fresh water into the city in this smart way was a total game changer, that this was going to allow the city to grow and thrive. Isn't so the, the reservoir is over there by uh, the Metropolitan Museum, isn't it? That's another little reservoir. Oh. That's not the Croton Reservoir. The Croton Reservoir is many miles outside of New York City. That's that's the reservoir everybody jogs around. And I think a lot of things get dumped in that reservoir. I'd be scared if we had to drink that water. But, <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 New York, so Central Park, so it, it had all these different areas. And in that way, because it was a thought out park meant to help the people of the city. It became a symbol for the forward thinking and the public spiritedness of New York City and of America. Like the democratic spirit, because it's for everybody. Exactly. And a lot of people who come to New York City start wandering around Central Park and think, oh, yeah, this kind of reminds me of this park in my hometown. Well, that's because likely the park in your hometown was directly copied. Yeah, other way from around. New York Paco. City. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I love, I love the park. It, oh yeah, it's, it's just an extraordinary place. And I, it's such a place of uh, that you also want from New York. So many surprises. Like you'll be wandering around, and then you'll happen upon the you know Strawberry Fields area, or mm -hmm. some all of a sudden some beautiful lake, or the way it looks in the fall. It looks like when Harry met Sally. It's just yeah, beautiful, beautiful park. No, beautiful park and so many different little things to see and do. There's the zoo. Yeah. There's this gorgeous carousel, which is oh, not yeah. the original. The original <laughs> the original had a blind mule in the basement making it spin. The poor animal just walked in circles oh, all that's day depressing. round. Isn't that depressing? That's worse than the carriage ride horses. I feel so bad for them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you'll get bad information if you take those carriage rides. The the, the folks who run them don't know what they're talking about when <laughs> they're giving uh, your spiel. BSing. Oh, and the yeah. those pedicabs are so expensive. Like uh, well, a yeah. dollar a foot, my lord. Especially <laughs> so over anyway, there by like the the plaza. Yeah. So expensive. But but the carousel is gorgeous, and it was brought in from Coney Island. It, it was built, I think, in the just at the turn of the last century, and it. it it too is just another splendid thing you can see in the park, like Cleopatra's Needle, yeah. which is an actual uh, obelisk from Egypt um, brought to New York as a thank you gift for the Suez Canal because we helped build the Suez Canal in Egypt and they gave us this big monument. Yeah. Did, did you know that? I, I didn't know that's where it came from. It's also by the Met, right? Yes. It, um, I, I think it in older travel writings, it, it seems like a, it was a bigger deal than it is now, the Cleopatra's Needle. Yeah. Maybe because yeah. it was new. Right. Yeah. It, but it still is. I mean, it has nothing to do with Cleopatra. It, it actually was built centuries before she was around. Oh, really? They just picked yeah. it because the, they picked her name because she's from Egypt. Yeah, exactly. She was she's the famous Egyptian. Um so uh there and then there's other things in the book that you cannot do today. And I kind of wish you could. One of my favorite things that Zach found is uh that they recommend free things that you can do. One of which was, and I'm going to quote from the book, for a 50 cents contribution to the Seamen's Welfare Fund, you can do the next best thing to taking an ocean trip to Europe by visiting the majestic transatlantic ocean liners in their berths at New York piers. The, pier the piers are located on the Hudson River from 
4th to 57th Street, ships are open to the public during the four or so hours before departure. It's fun to inspect the lavish dining rooms with smorgasbord tables awaiting guests and the elegant ballrooms that will soon be scenes of hilarity on the high seas. One half hour before sailing time, the whistle blows for all the visitors to go ashore. On the pier again, you'll witness the mounting excitement on and around the ship. Stubby tugs move up to push the ship to sea as cheers rise and strands of confetti float down to the dock. Isn't that amazing? I wish there was confetti nowadays for cruise ships. And that write-up does make it sound uh, the, the least fun part of a cruise, waiting for it to go. They make it sound a lot more fun than it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Can you do that today, Zach? Uh, you will be tackled at the at the dock uh, by <laughs> Homeland Security. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No way. No. It's I wonder a, when it's the a... last time they let people, just randos, just board ships. Uh, it has I to be know. stopped at 9-11 uh, for sure. I, maybe before. Well, it used to be. I mean, before 9-11, maybe in the year before 9-11, we used to give the advice that if you want to take a cruise ship and pay very little, walk on to the dock Go up to the cruise ship, ask to speak with the bursar, I think it was, and see if there are any antique empty cabins. Oh, and just, if, you're just, it's a Saturday and you're just like, you know what, I'm going to cruise to the Bahamas today. Yeah, exactly. You can just exactly. stroll on board. Oh, wow. Things have changed. Haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> Although they're still, so, so you can't do that anymore. And, and the excitement of travel, I mean, it, it reminds me of stories that my father tells me when he was 14, he moved from Jefferson City, Missouri to New York City. Uh, This was during World War II, and uh, his father got a new job in New York City at a clothing factory there. He was always an accountant for clothing factories. And my father walked from magazine to newspaper to magazine until he got a job after school. He worked as a copy boy for Newsweek magazine. Wow. And one of the things he had to do was he was sent periodically to the airport because so few people were flying in those days. They thought maybe they'll figure out something. Maybe there's a story there. And and he describes his great excitement just going to the airport and asking around, seeing who was about to get on a flight or get off a flight. Um, and then he would, you know, report back the news to the editors of, of Newsweek. And if there was something happening, he didn't get to write it. He was 14. Uh, but uh, they they might be able to create a story from that. There are some. I feel like that has to be that has to be a a, a seed of who he became. Like it has to do oh, with journalism absolutely. and travel. My Yeah. yeah. Uh, what year was that? Uh, I forget what year he was born. So when he was, he was 14, born in 29 been... in 1929. So, yeah. So that would have been so the early forties. Uh, the early forties, yeah. There are still behind the scene things that you can do in New York that we write up in uh, Fromer's Easy Guide to New York City, uh, like going to uh, live tapings of shows, uh, TV shows, and that's in the that's in the original book. Isn't it, it is. I, a lot of shows were shot in New York. The, sh- the book came out in early in early the early '60s. So yeah, w- uh, we recommend going to the Ed Sullivan Show, which is now where Stephen Colbert. No, no, it's not. Uh, Stephen Colbert's gone. No, yeah, Stephen Colbert. No, I'm Stephen sorry, Colbert's. Yeah, <laughs> Dave Stephen Colbert's. Dave Letterman's gone. There. Stephen Colbert's. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of game shows on CBS and uh, NBC, ABC, all those. And you can still do that. And it's uh, my big piece of advice is dress nicely. Don't wear loud patterns because if you do, you'll get the best seats. They're actually they they look at the audience and at like like you would as a casting director, mm-hmm. and they cast who they want to have on camera. So those people who look good and who aren't going to be too distracting, they get to sit near the front. And sometimes if they do something with the audience, they're they're more likely to be picked. Uh, no plaid. But- uh, have you ever gone to a show? A, I've gone a to a show? number. Yeah, I've seen Saturday Night Live, oh, which fun. was a lot of fun. And I've seen, well, I've been on the Regis, when it was still around, the Regis and Kathy Lee show I was on a couple oh, of times. Oh, was a guest. Oh, yeah. And you've, you're on good, you've been on Good Morning America. And New Year, and the Today Show. So, yeah, it's interesting. Have you ever been? I've The only thing I've been uh, is The View, because ah. a friend of mine loved the show. But Whoopi wasn't on that day, and I was very disappointed. 
<laughs> was uh, it, it's, but it's interesting just seeing all the camera work uh, oh, yeah. and the stops and starts and how they get the applause going. And just how phony it is. Like the, the, you're, you're, you're uh, hyped up the entire time. Like someone's always manipulating your emotions to be more excited and more energetic the whole time. Yeah. There. Yeah. So you have that back, back, backstage view. And how small everything is. Everything's very small. Like oh, the yeah. sets are tiny. They're smashed in there. Actually, I've been watching election uh, returns, as Mm -hmm. we all have this week. (laughs) And uh, I've taken the NBC tour a couple of times, which is a great tour. You go into Rockefeller Center and you see a lot of the different studios. And they do look so much smaller in person. Every time I'm watching these returns, I'm thinking, ah, this really doesn't look what it looks like in person. Do the NBC pages really lead the tours, like on that show 30 Rock? Uh, I think it's just tour guides who are yeah. leading the tours. Um, but I feel like NBC uh, Rockefeller Center is the best one to go for that classic TV situation because it's been there so long. And yeah. You've got SNL and Jimmy Fallon. I think that's the only backstage tour there is in New York City, to be oh, honest. Okay. With oh, you. Well, I meant with like tapings and everything. Oh, you, I see. You can go to the ABC. I think yeah, yeah, Kelly yeah. and Ryan, and th- that's where I saw The View. Hmm. So, yeah, absolutely fascinating to see it. And NBC has done a good job in not just taking you to to the different um, uh, studios. And the key is you want to go first thing in the morning so you can actually see the Today Show going on live. Uh, not just from the street as everybody does, but really much closer up when you take the tour. If you if you take it at a time when something is is taping, that's the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also have all, all throughout the tour, they've put behind glass cases really interesting artifacts of the network over the years and oh, um, like props and stuff and props from from uh, yeah props and costumes from Saturday Night Live and microphones and different things that that made the news over the years and there's also great backstage tours at at Radio City Music Hall, you get to meet a rockette and get your photo taken with her. Uh, there's great backstage tours at the Metropolitan Opera, oh. which is one of the most extraordinary. It's another feat of engineering. I mean, it's this huge stage, which has five levels below it, each of which is the height of an average apartment building. Uh, for these sets to go up and down and in and out and and just the extraordinary size and magnificence yeah. of everything there. It's is. the opposite of a TV set. That's there. That's huge. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. It's a, one of the best. I hope it'll return. One of the best backstage tours that I know of. And the other behind the scenes thing that I really recommend in New York City is the Federal Reserve. Have you ever done that, Zach, down no. in the financial district? No, that sounds dull to me, but <laughs> make a case, Pauline. <laughs> All right. Well, the Federal Reserve actually has more gold in it than Fort Knox. In fact, the most gold in the world is stored in the Federal Reserve. And the reason it's in New York City is New York City is is underneath the city is a, a stone called schist. Sounds like a curse oh, yeah. word. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's one of the hardest substances on earth. It's one of the reasons we can have these incredible tall apartment buildings. In fact, uh, not or or skyscrapers, I should say. You can kind of tell where the schist is from where the skyscrapers are as you're walking around the city. In Midtown, the schist is very near to the surface, the same in the financial district, less so when you get to the eastern and west, western edges of the building, of the of the city. And that's why mostly the buildings are lower there because there's just not as much uh, to build upon. Um, so uh, they decided to have the gold in New York City because they blasted out a vault in this impregnable schist. So it's five stories down. And this uh, is in this is uh, Lower Manhattan. Just this to- is in Lower Manhattan in the Federal Reserve. In fact, on the day that 9-11 happened, 
there was a rumor that 9-11 was happening so that somebody could try and get into the Federal Reserve and steal all that gold. And so half of the cops who were sent out because of 9-11 went to the Federal Reserve. They didn't go to the World Trade Center site. They went there to protect it. Um, So you, you go to this massive building, which looks like a fortress and is a fortress. They actually have an indoor firing range so that the people who guard it can practice their shooting. Um, You have to put all of your uh, stuff that you have on your body in a locker. You're not even allowed to bring a piece of paper and a pen in to see all the gold. And um, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating place. Is this something you have to reserve in advance? Yes, you You do. Because- well, you can't oh, do you that cannot, anywhere anymore. Yeah. You cannot stroll up because they actually do background checks on you. They want oh, to make sure. Oh, it's heavy duty. That's like going to the, well, the yeah. White House. Don't you have, you have your congressional approval or whatever? Or a yes, sponsorship? that's yeah. right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they do background checks on you. It so. sounds like Gringotts in Harry Potter, the bank <laughs> where all the yes. trolls live. Yeah. And you also learn about the work of the Federal Reserve, which is uh, very interesting. But Did you get to see the gold? You get to touch the gold. You held a gold bar? No, I didn't held. Oh. You basically, they, they allow you they to put your hand through these bars and kind of pet the gold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so like at a nuclear facility with those gloves, kind of? Well, you don't wear gloves. You, it's your own it's hands. Gold. I hope you wear gloves nowadays in, in coronavirus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if this, this tour is going, it's probably that not going fun. on I'm right going to do that. Oh, it's really great. So- So some of the things we love about New York City, and it's not a ghost town. No, it is certainly not a ghost town. Well, we thank you so much for listening. If you're traveling in the near future, or if you're traveling in the far future, or if you're just traveling in your mind, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 